This is the Nuance Podcast by Medicine Explained. We're your hosts, Amanda and Dan. We talk to experts on health, the human experience, and the intersection of climate and human health. We explore the nuance that's been lost in today's conversation. These are ideas that aren't touched upon in headline culture and most media outlets. We don't take ads because we want to keep our information unbiased, but we do need your support. So leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It is my honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Andrew Goldstein. Dr. Andrew Goldstein, MD, MPH, is an assistant professor at NYU who practices primary care at Bellevue, especially for those with high medical need and experiencing homelessness. His medical activism has focused on healthcare, immigration, climate, gun violence, and vaccine apartheid. Today, we explore how social factors can influence health, such as houselessness and even unions. Dr. Goldstein explains the roles of doctors and physicians in advocacy and his experience with advocacy in healthcare. Dr. Goldstein explains the nonprofit industrial complex and philanthropic capitalism and compares it to making changes at the policy level. We speak about much more, and at the end, he discusses a vision of the future. For context, this podcast was recorded on February 1st, 2022. Now, on to the conversation. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on. Um, I've already chatted with you on the phone before this, and I love your journey and your story. So I'm really excited to share it with Daniel and with our listeners. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we would love to just start off with what you do, um, just introduce yourself a little bit to us and our audience, and what was your journey into medicine? Well, I'm a public hospital primary care doctor, and I uh, have a balance of that word. It's sort of a general population clinic for primary care, and then one part of it is homeless medicine for people who are experiencing homelessness and living with multiple medical conditions and sort of tries to have more wraparound services uh, for that population. And I do clinical work half-time, and the rest of my time, I do a lot of political organizing. And I came to that because early in my life, I realized that the world was pretty unjust and was pretty, um, you know, just felt like witnessing that, felt like I needed to do something and be involved in fixing, fixing a lot of the structures that were causing that injustice. And I felt like a lot of people who felt similarly had a very macro perspective on that, often to the point of like things were abstract, they were intellectual, they weren't really always like proven based on real world experience. Um, And sometimes that led to like, you know, good intentions going bad ways. And so I didn't have a great model of what clinical medicine could look like. You know, I had like a strip mall pediatrician growing up and I didn't really have like a template for what medicine could look like until uh, learning a little bit more about Paul Farmer and Partners in Health and the other doctors there and saw how they had like a good balance of direct clinical care, building up a nonprofit and the programs within that nonprofit, and then doing political advocacy based on their their frontline clinical work and their organizational work. And that just was very appealing to me to have that balance of both frontline experience and also the macro perspective. I love that perspective. Um, That's part of what drives me to go into family medicine, which I'm applying to right now. I just think that having that relationship with the community and hearing what their needs are instead of assuming what their needs are is really important in policy and advocacy work. 
And so I think we were talking before and your, your perspective on medicine and advocacy work changed a bit in medical school. Do you mind talking about like your transformation in medical school and how you saw your career or your, your advocacy work change? Yeah, I went into medicine with this perspective that like all of humanity is the level that we should be thinking about, not just people in my town or in uh, the United States. And we really sort of like the partners in health mantra is to like serve the poorest of the poor. And that was morally appealing to me and that made sense. And so I went into medicine thinking I would do global health, both a field where I would do that clinically and then also where I would be involved in nonprofit work. And what I came to realize was there's a lot of brokenness within the field of global health. There's a lot of like, you know, redoing of what colonial structures existed, where rich countries, even what, where a program is uh, nominally aimed to better the world actually can duplicate a lot of the harms um, that are there in the first place. It also just felt like people were fighting over crumbs, like the nonprofit ecosystem, really great nonprofits were you know, begging very rich people for money so that they could you know, meet the needs of you know, less than 1% of humanity that, that needed healthcare. So that was giving me a little bit of pause about the nonprofit industrial complex and about philanthropic capitalism, terms I did not have language for at that point. And at some point, I was like, it seemed that many people in my generation, the people who are graduating from you know, college in the uh, mid-2000s, uh, that we were very much focused on like social entrepreneurship or nonprofits um, or like tech for good, and that politics was really getting neglected. You know, nowadays it's like, oh, AOC is a member of Congress and, you know, she's younger than me. And there are other members of Congress who are, you know, quite young. And I don't recall anyone in my generation really thinking about like, oh, let's run for office. Let's be politically active, let alone outside of uh, elected officials, like doing political work as part of social movements. And yeah, at some point I realized as much as I like loved consuming politics, I needed to like get off the sidelines. And that moment for me uh, was when Trump won and I had a very strong call to action moment and dove headlong into uh, political organizing and tried to learn as much as possible. And that's where I've been at since. I'm just curious, do you plan on running for office one day? Probably never. I, I like, <laughs> really can't imagine that. I, I think a lot of that has to do with what my theory of power is. Like, I don't think in the U.S. political system, politicians have much power. They respond. Like, I think Joe Biden, in some ways, is an excellent U.S. politician. He does the great job of changing his positions to where political pressures lie, whether that's corporate interests or social movements. He's very nimble. And that's what the U.S. political template is. And I don't you know, agree with a lot of his conclusions from that. I don't think they're right. I think he deserves criticism, um, but I don't see him as really having much power to impact things because of the way that he rose to power. Those things make it so actually power lies, you know, one step behind that and who's actually pressuring people, who's actually getting people elected. And I think that's where um, I have much stronger interest because I think that's where you know, everyday people power has so much potential that's untapped that we really need to dive into to really shift things. Amazing. Um, you mentioned philanthropic capitalism and the nonprofit industrial complex. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, let's start with the nonprofit industrial complex. So nonprofits are legal entities that cannot take a profit. And because of that, they fundraise most of the time. Some actually, you know, 
they charge funding for services and that's how they uh, keep things operational. But most are doing like requests for donations and grants. And when they're going to people that can give them grants or can give them donations, it's often rich people or rich people's foundations. And those rich people have very vested interests. The corporations that give out money have very vested interests. And so you can do good as long as it's, it's within certain lines. And then on top of that, you're also doing a lot of essentially in the same way that like money gets laundered from the mafia, you're doing reputation laundering for many organizations and individuals who in other domains of life are actually doing a lot of harm. So that's two of the main things. Um, but the third one is also just like what, what that does when it sucks up all the attention. Oh, nonprofits are doing everything. But then if you look at the scale of all the nonprofits, is it meeting the needs of seven and a half billion human beings? No. So it's like a drop in the bucket and it's in name only and we're degrading public systems. And so the opportunity cost is that attention doesn't go to making sure that we have robust, you know, human rights driven, equity driven uh, public services and public institutions. And then philanthropic capitalism is sort of like a part of that. It's like philanthropy doing that, you know, reputation laundering, uh, ego boosting, and often, you know, also a lot of money making within the nonprofit sector. And so one example is for aim to vaccinate humanity, Pfizer is donating doses. The U.S. government is donating doses, but they're donating at a pace that is so inferior to what's needed. We need 20 billion doses and they've given out a few billion. And when they make an announcement, it's like 500 million doses donated. And people are like, that is a gigantic number. It must be great, but it's less than 10% of what's needed. And so if you have any perspective, you're like, oh, this is a press release. This is a press release more than it's actually substance. And that's where we should be critical. And there's lots of good work that's happening in these spaces, but also we need to make sure we're doing what actually gets people what they need at the end of the day. And if it's not enough, we need to say that and do more. Do you have any ideas on how we could improve just the whole nonprofit industry as a whole? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of really, really important and good work that's happening there. And I think we shouldn't in any way denigrate that. So I think it's important to elevate the really good work that's substance and not just rhetoric. At the same time, I think it's important to be critical of the entire ecosystem and demand change within that ecosystem. I think a lot's been talked about how, you know, the political right is much better at funding folks in the right-wing nonprofit spaces because they actually don't put as many strings attached and they sort of like let a lot of people run free. They also put a lot of money in. Whereas some of the, you know, well-intentioned, let's have metrics for this, let's get reports, they actually can really hamstring a lot of good work from happening. And so I think a lot of different organizations need more money, need less strings attached, or need different ways of judging whether the work that they're doing is good or not. And it can't be done separate from politics. It cannot be treated as if it's a vacuum of, oh, do-goodery can just exist in the you know civic society space, but not in the political space and depoliticizing whether it's healthcare or other things. It's, it's just not possible. That's great. Um, I want to shift a little bit and I want our listeners to get insight from you on homelessness. Can you talk about your perspective on, you know, what the current issues are and what people are dealing with in terms of homelessness? Yeah, I, I don't really know where to start on this. I think the most important part is like, everyone deserves to be housed. Like, we could do it. There are countries and there are municipalities that are just like, oh, you are unhoused. You have a right to housing. Here's a place where you could stay. 
And so that's the bar is that like, could, do we lack enough buildings to keep people housed? No, we don't. We actually have like tons of, un, you know, there's, it's not even just like buildings. It's like actual houses. There's houses that are empty around the U.S. And it's a real moral travesty that we allow people to, you know, feel like they must sleep in. You know, right now I'm in New York City and there's a massive snowstorm and, you know, temperatures have been below 10 and uh, it's just awful that people are being made to be in that situation. I, I think it's important, and this is related to our, what we were talking about with the nonprofit industrial complex, there are like pseudo solutions for this. So there are shelters. And so a lot of my patients are sheltered dwelling people who are experiencing homelessness. Um, but shelters are brutal places, even in you know well-intentioned cities. And so they're often run by nonprofits. They get funding from the city but you're living dorm style housing with people who you did not choose to live with. People have a lot of, you know, experiences of, of violence or just being treated uh, poorly verbally. And we're in the middle of a pandemic. So like, imagine being told like, Oh, you can choose to sleep outside where it's 10 degrees, or you can sleep with 10 people who might have COVID. Those are your choices. We're giving you a choice. We're doing the good thing. We have a shelter for you. And that's, you know, that's total BS. Like, we could give this person a house where they could just, you know, be in an apartment by themselves and they deserve that as a human right. So I think we should be very morally clear about what's possible. But yeah, the pandemic, temperatures, violence towards homeless people, how homelessness just like really fragments your life and stresses your life and makes it so, you know, for things like healthcare, it's like kind of a lower priority agenda item because like you got other stuff to deal with. Like we, we really need to be doing better about that stuff. Is the homelessness situation in New York, is it actually, I mean, you know, you've always heard that it's like, it's better than San Francisco. And I'm just curious, like my own curiosity, are they, it seems like they do a decent job compared to some other cities. Is that actually true or, or not so much? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's really hard to say that any place is doing it better if people are choosing to live on the street in very difficult climates because they feel like the shelter system is so terrible. Is it better in some ways than other places? Probably. But is it worse than other places or just unacceptable? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with that. And I've seen the the homelessness population or the homelessness issue getting worse and worse. Can you explain to us what some of the factors are that's like increasing homelessness and houselessness? Yeah, well, one big thing is just the lack of being able to have a livelihood. And that's been really terrible in this economy with the pandemic. You know, all the shocks to the pan to the economy from the pandemic have been totally preventable. People have been very short-sighted trying to say like, oh, if we control spread, that's actually going to hurt the economy when not controlling spread makes it grow 10 times worse. And then there's a de facto lockdown of people just not wanting to participate in the economy because it's unsafe. And then people lose their job because the restaurant that they're working at doesn't, you know, isn't making enough to employ them. So I, I definitely have a lot of patients who had housing instability that led to homelessness. And the housing instability is worsened by, you know, the cost of, of living. And so I think uh, you know, those two things are definitely both impacted by public policy. And, you know, there's a bit of a housing justice movement in places like New York, but not so much nationwide. I mean, there's really good movements for climate justice, but I think housing justice is much more fragmented. 
you know, it's a, people are treated like, oh, renters are different than people who are experiencing homelessness are different than homeowners. These are different populations and there's no like broad based housing justice. How can we have affordable, high quality housing for all? Yeah. And I think part of the issue with that is the people who usually do the organizing around like climate actions and stuff. I mean, there's more and more diversity in it from socioeconomic to ethnic to cultural but I think that in the houselessness and homelessness crisis, like it isn't really directly impacting people who usually do the organizing. Yeah. And there's some really good examples of that not being the case. But I think that's the, the most common thing is what you said, is that actually most people are organizing for on behalf of people experiencing homelessness. But it's often not. But there are like unions of people experiencing homelessness. There's a great group in New York called Vocal New York, which has people directly affected by a variety of issues, including incarceration, HIV, and homelessness. And so there are some organizations that get it and do a much better job. That's really good. And you did mention unions, which is something that, uh, like workers' unions, is something that's a big topic. And most people wouldn't necessarily relate it to, to health. But something that's really interesting to me recently is something called social medicine, which we've touched upon on our podcast in the past. But could you explain to us what exactly exactly social medicine is and how things like unions can apply to health? Yeah, well, social medicine is the idea that much of what causes health isn't like just strictly biological. It's not a virus particle or something in, you know, pollution. It's social things. And things like education and housing and your economic status and racism, your immigration status, all these things. And it goes from wanting to have a better understanding of those determinants of health and then also wanting to intervene on them. And some of those interventions are clinical, like, oh, my patient is having a hard time taking their insulin properly because they're unhoused and because they can't store insulin properly. And so they're often without insulin that we need to fix the housing before we can fix their control of their diabetes. Uh, other things, though, it's something you can't fix clinically. You need to actually intervene at the population, the community, the structural level. And that's like something like air pollution, right? We're not going to be like, oh, you have asthma and you're suffering from air pollution. So we're going to give you um, like an N95 you can just wear for the rest of your life in all settings. Um, no, like we need to like actually have public policies that correct air pollution for everyone. So. Yeah, social medicine is a field that's existed for a really long time. And there's a lot of great examples of people who have, you know, been in that tradition of medicine. And I think that's something that all of us in medicine really should be a part of. Yeah, so that leads us into one of our questions. I know that you're involved in activism. And I was wondering, what do you think that the role of the physician is in politics and activism? And should every physician have a role and play a part in it? Well, the American Medical Association, which is not a particularly progressive or left-wing organization, actually has in like the code of what our professional norms are that we need to all be advocates. Now, advocacy can take many forms. It can mean like this patient needs something. I'm going to call their insurance company and actually fight the insurance company to get them what they need. But it can also mean a lot of political work and systems change. And so... I think if you did all of the hustling against insurance companies and you tried to build the best healthcare system possible, you would still 
have an utterly inadequate society in which our patients live, where their health is really getting failed by many other determinants, and where the only option is to take political action. And so, yes, I think we have a professional obligation and ethical obligation to be involved politically. We had a really good conversation, too, uh, when we were on the phone about what activism looks like for a physician. And I know that you just touched upon how it can be different and it can look different in different forms. But something that I I wanted to bring up is like the way that you do activism. So what projects have you been working on and where do you see your role um, in this space? Well, two things I've been working on very recently have been a campaign to make sure that there's global vaccine justice. And that's been with a lot of grassroots U.S.-based organizations because the U.S. has a lot of power because we're in the U.S. um, And because ultimately a lot of the decisions are something that like Joe Biden really could influence and he's not. And then the other work that I've been involved with is, you know, our pandemic response has been atrocious. Uh, We probably have over a million people who have died in the U.S. The counted numbers are more around 900,000, but excess death estimates are way over a million. And I'm of the mind that the vast majority of that was preventable. There's other countries that have had, you know, one-tenth, one-hundredth of our death rate. So, like, we did an awful job. And that's those were policy choices. And there were a lot of health experts. There were a lot of political pundits who have been crafting a narrative all along saying, oh, it's over. Oh, it's not that bad. These aren't even people who are, you know, full-on denialist or anti-mask or anti-vaccine. This is sort of what's been labeled COVID-centrists. People who are like, oh, we're neither pro-shutdowns nor are we anti-vaccine. We're sort of in the middle. But these folks have actually been crafting a narrative that justifies a lot of policy and action and a lot of inadequate action. And that inadequate action has led to, you know, countless deaths and countless cases of long COVID and, you know, just vast social disruption and, and economic loss. And so I think writing that narrative and actually really being a part of, you know, public health and medical professionals who have been you know, combating the broken narratives from some of those health experts who have been really justifying the bad policies um, has been some of the work I've been a part of, too. There's a general trend that um, some science isn't trusted anymore, but there is a lot of scientific claims in the media. So how can we become more media literate uh, when it comes to science? Well, I think we really need to step back I love this question because it really makes us think about like, what is like, is it just politicians? Is it just the CDC? Is it just scientists? And the reality is we live in a world with a very fragmented ecosystem um, for media. And that media environment is just so different than like, you know, 50 years ago where there was just like ABC news. And if ABC news decided you were a scientist and you went on the news, then that's what the news was. Like that's the voice of science. And nowadays, it's really different. You can have some job or some title where you are nominally a scientist and you can put something on a preprint server that is formatted to look like science and people will write news stories about what you just put up there. It will get on social media. People will make a whole bunch of claims on this. And that's what we saw with ivermectin. And so was that science? Did we, and I think we, you know, all know that like there's a lot of brokenness within the scientific production system and how it gets communicated to the public. But I don't think that it really comes down to like faith in science. I think it really has to do with like who are trustworthy communicators, what are trustworthy sources of evidence 
and how much of that is being aligned with different political efforts because there there are real political and business efforts to say that like be anti-vaccine and other interests to say like be anti-mask and those interests get drive a lot of hits and those hits drive a lot of um you know beliefs yeah let's shift gears a little bit and let's talk about mental health so you've discussed earlier about you know all the social issues that are affecting people's health um can you talk a little bit about how these things compound and affect our mental health i'm tired <laughs> about you guys very tired <laughs> concur <laughs> yeah i'm i'm tired i'm full of more anger than i'm used to i'm not a very angry person but i still have some and like i think that's just you know wariness uh, and wariness drives people in different places it can be isolation it can be giving up on could we have substantive solutions uh for me i for whatever reason i'm wired so i'm like how can we fix this? Like drive all fatigue and anger into like what is fixable? How can we work towards fixing things? But it takes a toll, right? And I think that's like kind of the best case scenario for many people. Like other people are wary from the state of things and from worrying about the risk levels, but also have lost livelihoods. Also, you know, can't pay rent and rent relief went away or have to go to a job that is particularly endangering. Like I have access to, you know, airborne level protective gear and many people working many jobs that are much higher risk than mine don't. And so, yeah, I, I think like there are just so many stresses from the pandemic alone, but even before the pandemic, there was so much brutality just from how we've organized things and kept people from getting their basic needs met. Um, so I think it takes a real toll. But the last thing I would just add on this is like, how were we societally anyway, when it came to just thriving, like emotionally and mentally and relationally and from a community perspective, thriving, like, it's not like we were all knowing our neighbors, hanging out with our neighbors, had, you know, great strong friendships that were not distracted from by like watching Netflix by yourself. Like there's, there's lots of factors out there apart from the pandemic that have really been driving us apart and driving us towards less meaningful interactions with each other. And uh, yeah, just having people not have the strongest skill set to relate to one each other and cause harm to each other instead. So I think there's a, a lot of work to do in that space. And I'm very excited by different groups that are trying to focus on that. Yeah. And I think that this is a good point to talk about your quote from Twitter, which I'm going to read. <laughs> and you said, what was quote unquote normal, it has tragically long been quote-unquote normal for the powerful to obscure preventable mass death and suffering across a host of issues. It has been normal for the powerful to obscure their inadequate responses to these, to drive the general public to ignore or tolerate these. So yeah, I'd say we've been back to normal for months. It's just an awful normal worth fighting against and transforming. Think malaria, air pollution, endless war, impoverishment, forced migration, social isolation, substance use, unhealthy foods, incarceration, climate crisis, lack of healthcare, lack of schools, lack of housing, lack of work, lack of food, lack of clean water, all normal, minimized, obscured, ignored, tolerated. So if we're talking new normal, if you are outraged or drained by the numbness, let's demand and build a new normal, one intolerant of these injustices and the bullshit that enables them. I loved this wow. and <laughs> very well written. Um, and I think that because we've been talking so much about all of these issues and all of these social pressures, 
there is some hope towards building a, a better tomorrow. So what keeps you hopeful and what is your picture of a new normal? What is your vision? Yeah, I think one part of what I'm hoping can come from the pandemic is that people can, you know, walk away with a little bit clearer eyes about how the world works. You know, there's been so many failures and like, where did they come from? And what does that mean? And so we've seen, you know, it's related to your trusting science question. I think a lot of people thought we lived in what's called a technocracy, where if like scientists say this or evidence is that, like, we'll just do that because that makes sense and that'll help the most people. And the reality is like, that's actually not how the world works. Like if the science says something is good and no one opposes it and it's not that expensive, then maybe it gets done. But if it's expensive or if someone opposes it, then it faces a huge political uphill fight. And if no one's going to fight for it, there's no constituency for it because who gets it is somewhat random, then it's not going to go anywhere. And so I think we need to lose faith in technocracy. Evidence alone, expertise alone is not going to get things done. We need people power and that needs to be built. And I hope people, the hopeful side of this is like, if more people get that, then they'll participate more deeply in society and politically and that can build a new normal where there's deeper participation, a more vibrant democracy, a more vibrant civil space. And yeah, that, that's something that I have a lot of hope in. And that drives all those things. If more people show up, because I think most people share our values. Most people don't want injustices. Most people want everyone to get their basic needs met. And I think if those people actually are more activated and more participating deeply and are better organized, then actually the, all those terrible things I mentioned about normal, um, those can be transformed. What does healthy people power look like? I know you're seeing it in a lot of forms today, whether it be on the internet, in person, protests, whatever. Um, what are some healthy ways to do so? Well, there's a whole toolkit out there. And I think before I got more politically active, I actually felt a lot of discomfort. I actually saw political action in a very like negative light in a lot of ways, like, oh, petitions are useless, they don't affect change, or like protest is just noisy. And I don't think I really understood the toolkit and how it can be deployed effectively. And I think I tended also towards politics as talking about politics with your loved ones or new people that you're meeting, or it's reading politics. And those things are not politics. Those things actually, politics is about power. Those things do not impact power. Consuming politics does not actually affect politics. And so what we really need to do is have a much better understanding of the political toolkit. Each of us individually actually need to like dive in and try it out, like actually join a group that is doing some lobbying, join a group that is doing some protests, join a group that is running for office and explore the tactics, learn how to knock on doors, learn how to speak to a member of Congress, learn how to speak publicly before a, a large audience. Those things are really uncomfortable. Most people feel really uncomfortable doing them, especially in America where there's a very strong anti-political uh, belief. And so I think that's a part of it. But the biggest part of it is don't do it alone. Even if you personally went, like dove in and learned all these different tools and, and got comfortable with them, you'd be pretty ineffective because you're, you know, you're a lone wolf. That's not going to do that much. You're one person. So we need to get better at engaging our coworkers, engaging our loved ones, engaging our neighbors, and actually building organizations, building communities that take political action together. And even small groups, I mean, like ACT UP, which is this great HIV 
advocacy organization, they had very small groups doing tactics that were very powerful and they were very strategically deployed and they won huge policy wins because of that. And so I think we just need to learn how to come together um, and take action with the full toolkit. And I think we could do that. Yeah. And, and going back a little bit to, to the hope aspect and like what keeps you going, I felt pretty isolated, um, I think, in, in medical school when I wanted to do work on like climate change. And once I joined groups outside of medicine who were already working on these things, who were doing like climate action and, and doing like policy work, there's actually so many groups and so many people working on this stuff. It's just it makes me very hopeful. And that keeps me going. <laughs> Yeah, a big part of this is like, why do you ever build any habits? Like, imagine if you wanted to build a new habit and no one else was doing it, and the people who you might do it with, you actually didn't really enjoy spending time with, versus like, what if you wanted to exercise more and your friends wanted to do it with you and it was an activity that you found fun and you find it together and you just start doing it regularly? It's joyful. It's not just like a checking a box, you know, on this moral chore of being politically active. It's like, I am aligned with purpose. I'm spending time with people who share values with me. We're doing good things together. And that's so important. Absolutely. So you do half of your time clinical work um, and half in, in policy and advocacy work. So I was wondering, just also for my edification and how to be a future physician, but when you see someone come to your clinic who's suffering from let's say, like you said, uh, severe asthma because of air pollution or uh, homelessness. How do you address these social factors with uh, your one-on-one clinic work? Unfortunately, we're not set up to fix things. We can't fix everything in that clinical interaction. So I think the most important thing is to really understand it so you don't make any prejudgments about like, you know, that person with diabetes who can't actually uh, store their insulin safely, or they don't have it secured from theft or other things. And so they don't have it, you know, to not approach them with like prejudgment, like, Oh, this person just doesn't want to control their diabetes. It's non-compliant. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really this very ignorant attitude and very judgmental attitude that we have to avoid. And so treating people as like, maybe we don't understand what's really going on here. So like, why, why do you think your sugar is still so high? Oh, you're not taking your insulin. Why is that? What's happening? And like approaching that non-judgmentally and caringly, I think is the most important thing. And then being able to respond and say like, that's awful. You deserve to actually have a place where you can store your medicine. And I'm so sorry that you don't have that. Is there something that we can do to troubleshoot that? And sometimes there is, sometimes there's not. Sometimes people, you know, there's a bigger priority, like getting housing or having food in the first place or something like that. And really working with patients where they're at is probably the most important thing. But sometimes there's actually a thing that you can do to fix it. And people are looking for fixes and you can, you know, cobble together some sort of system for people that, you know, gets them their medication secured somewhere. I had one patient who was very charismatic and he would actually like get local pharmacies to dispense his prescriptions one vial at a time so that he didn't have to store all the rest of it. And yeah, he, he cobbled together his own. I didn't have to solve it. He did it himself. So I think, you know, just encouraging people to, to do what they can and to support them in the ways that we can from the system. But ultimately we have to get more resources to people. Yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you. We've talked a lot about 
learning and then unlearning these systems, um, so stuff that we've been taught or the idea that, like you were saying in your, in your graduating class, a lot of people thought that they would do tech and use tech for good or go into the nonprofit space and really just forgot the idea of like using politics to make change. So there's a lot of shift in thought in the United States that needs to happen. So do you have any book recommendations or resources for us or our guests to continue with like the learning or unlearning that we need to do to help move society forward? Yeah, one thing that I read recently, it's called A Collective Bargain. It's by Jane McAlevey. She's a labor organizer and academic studies of labor history. And she is just so thoughtful and has such great perspective on how corporate power and political power in the U.S. operate and how labor has been shrunk and marginalized and what are the antidotes to that. And a big part of that is like deeper participation by members of unions themselves, not just assuming that they're you know, union elected officials are going to solve things for them. So really focus on like deeper participation within the union, more militant tactics by the union, like strikes. And uh, it's just a very fantastic analysis of what's been happening for the past few decades to the labor movement and also great examples of what's happening nowadays that we can like drive a lot of inspiration from. Yeah. And something that I would like for you to explain to us as well, thank you for the recommendation, um, is we've talked about unions a couple of times and we've never fully elucidated what a union is on this podcast. And as we're looking at residency programs too, some are unionized, some aren't. So what is a union and what can it do for people who are part of that union? Yeah, I remember growing up and I don't know what like Reagan era propaganda that was anti-labor I'd been fed, but I'd like been fed a lot of like unions are about inefficiency and just like they're terrible and it took me a while to like, yeah, and learn that, like you said. So a union is basically saying your employer is one corporate entity and they get to make a contract with you. And if they make a contract with you, that's different from a contract from someone else. And that's all obscured to each individual person, each employee, then it actually is really easy for them to shortchange some people. And that just trends everything towards shortchanging everyone. And what a union is, is saying, we are a group of people who have a shared interest in the workplace conditions and our pay and benefits being better. And we're not anti this business. In fact, if this business went out of business, our union would be valueless because we won't have a job. So we, in a pro-our-business-having-an-existence way, want better for ourselves. And unions do this through collective bargaining. They bargain all the different employees together, bargain with one contract with the employer. And when that, doesn't, when that contract isn't going well or when um, there's some other change that happens in between contracts and labor isn't getting listened to, uh, unions have the power to strike, which means uh, work stoppage. So they're withholding their labor, which can shut down the business. And uh, that's a powerful tool as part of neg- negotiating, which no individual could really successfully do. Thank you for that explanation. I think I also grew up in a time where it was a little bit anti-union. And I'm not sure where that came from. <laughs> oh, it's uh, <laughs> there's a very clear messaging machine out there trying to drive anti-union uh, sentiment. And we're seeing it right now with how teachers unions are being treated in the pandemic. 
So lastly, we ask every guest on the podcast to finish the following sentence. The future is blank. Uh, the future is something that we should be honest about. It's not written. It could be really, really bad. It could be really, really good. It could be somewhere in between. And it's not set yet. And we have a lot of power to make it what we want with our individual futures and our collective future. And we should have no uh, assumptions about what the future is going to be. And so I think we shouldn't have our head in the sand. We shouldn't sit on the sidelines. We'll just get, you know, the worst versions if we do that, because malevolent forces will show up. And so we have to cultivate a better future and we have to guard against the worst futures. Well, Andrew, thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. Thank you guys so much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Future is Healthy podcast. If you loved what you heard, subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you think someone you know can benefit from any of the info we talked about, share this with friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. We don't rely on paid ads so that you can trust we have no conflict of interest in any of the information we provide or talk about in this podcast. If you support what we're doing, you can help us to continue putting out content by clicking the link to support the Future is Healthy podcast. This podcast is for general education purposes only. It is not a substitute for treatment, diagnoses, or professional medical advice. It does not constitute the practice of medicine or other qualified professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of this information from this podcast and any of the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. If you are seeking advice for any medical condition, it is important to seek the assistance from a qualified, trained, and licensed medical practitioner.